This is Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is one of Australia's greatest legal minds and one of our greatest authors, Mr. Richard Beasley, SC. Thank you very much, Mr. Richard Beasley, SC, for joining me today on Minimal. It's lovely to have your presence here, sir. Thanks for having me, Jim. Thank you. It's great to uh, meet you. I've heard a lot about you. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, Your book... Hell Has Harbour Views was a staple in uh, my house growing up, actually. Uh, and uh, um, Big pun? Who read it? So I reckon my mum would have bought it, and it sort of had pride of prominence in our on our bookshelf, which was in our living room. And I remember it was there for many years, and I picked it up when I was about 17, I think. And I was like... I don't know, I was umming and ahhing with the law at the time. And uh, yeah, so I gave it a go. It was on the shelf. And I loved it. It's a great book and I followed up with... Yeah, no, congratulations. Yeah, it's 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 such a great read. And um, and I was sort of hooked on your work since then because I picked up Ambulance Chaser shortly afterwards. And uh, anyway, here I am, age 37. I've finally come to the law. Uh, Richard, you'd be happy to know. (laughs) I'm in my third year now. But... um, uh, That that maturity will stand you in good stead. (laughs) I appreciate that. I appreciate mm. that. I've definitely left it um, left it uh, long in the tooth. But I don't want to go on and on about my experiences. I just wanted to uh, praise you for your work. And I have to pass on a message from Emmanuel Kirkusherian, who you may or may not know yes. is one of our yep, you know Emmanuel, yep. one of our co-hosts on our podcast, The Wigs, who wanted me to relay the message that Hell Has Harbour Views is the reason he never aspired to corporate law, uh, and he is ever so grateful to you for the warning. Isn't that that's criminal law's gain, I think, is it, or something like that. I agree. I would definitely yeah. agree. Definitely yeah. agree. Um, so let's just start with you. You know, I've read your bio in the lead up to our discussion. You're not from Sydney originally, is that right? I was born here, but my parents uh, got divorced uh, when I was very young. It, <laughs> it clearly wasn't a very happy divorce because mum... Uh, moved back to Adelaide where she was from uh, before I can even remember. So, yeah, I grew up in Adelaide before coming back here for work. My whole working life has been, with the exception of a a very short period, my whole working life has been in Sydney, though. And so why Sydney? What what, what drew you back here if you grew up in Adelaide? Uh, Adelaide was, I don't know what it's like now. Uh, (laughs) It's a very nice town, but it was... (laughs) Pretty quiet uh, back in, uh, outside of a few, shouldn't laugh at this, a few serial killings. Uh, right. But it was pretty quiet um, in the late 1980s, early 1990s when I was starting my career. So I just thought that uh, there might be uh, more opportunities or different opportunities in Sydney. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And so you made the move over and and why the law? What was so drawing about that at the time? Yeah, uh, well, I did a year of medicine and didn't like that. So law was uh, next uh, cab off the rank, if you like. I, I, I don't come from a family of lawyers. I don't come from a family of university graduates. Uh, mm. And uh, But my mother had a friend who was uh, unusually, uh, back in those days anyways, the 70s and 80s, uh, uh, a woman barrister who uh, was a, mainly did crime. Um, and uh, she seemed to live a fairly exciting life, so I thought, oh, maybe this will be good for me. Cool. Okay. So you did your university training in Sydney? 
Uh, I did a master's in Sydney. I did okay. undergraduate in Adelaide, yeah. Yeah, right. And that was about, about the time you've made the switch. Um, so I'm guessing, you know, your life follows that linear trajectory of, you know, you've completed your training, uh, your university graduate. You went to your master's, which is interesting. Well, sorry, I should ask, why'd you go master's? Uh, oh, look, I was working as a solicitor in Sydney at the time and it just seemed like the thing to do. But okay. um, after, I, after I left uni, I actually worked at a, a labour law firm in Adelaide where um, uh, some of the partners had been um, in senior political positions for the Labor Party in South Australia. One had been an Attorney General, a guy called Peter Duncan. Mm. In the 1970s, a very young Attorney General in Dunstan's government, and there were there was another uh, partner there, Terry Groom, who was a, a backbencher in the ALP. And so, most of my early work as a lawyer was uh, unfair dismissals, wages claims, personal injury, obviously workers' comp. Yeah. Uh, and then I went and worked for a big Sydney law firm, <laughs> definitely to the dark side. And if right. you've read Hellas Harbour Views, you can probably uh, see some comparisons to my early working days and uh, Hugh uh, Walker's uh, walk to the dark side as well. (laughs) Well, can we uh, talk about that? So I'm really interested and I'm actually kind of fascinated that you're not just a a barrister. You can't, you're a writer, you're a creative person. Uh, Do you consider yourself a writer more so than a solicitor? I consider writing um, and will continue to consider it as a hobby until uh, I reach a certain number of sales for a book one day, in which case I can say I'm actually now, I've never felt thought of myself um, as a writer simply because I haven't lived a writer's life. I've found time to write books and they've been published by, you know, good publishers. Um, uh, but um, being a lawyer has always been the bread and butter. And I think if you're engaged in a profession like law, which uh, whatever you think of it is very demanding, intellectually demanding and demanding on your time, you never think of yourself as having a dual career. So, uh, okay. Um, I think of myself as a lawyer first and a, and a writer as it really is. Um, it's an extensive hobby, but it's not a dual career. Not yeah, that's interesting. That, that's fair enough. And, and I, I appreciate that. It's interesting, though, that you've reached the levels that you have in terms of writing, because I, I can only imagine it being extremely difficult to get work published at the best of times, let alone by major publishers, and to have a bestseller on your hands, of course, uh, and, and, and a book, uh, your first book, which is so, uh, you know, beloved. Um, it's iconic, Jim. It's, it's iconic. iconic. It is. I mean, when, when when the Whigs were talking about it, I noticed, you know, I obviously follow you on Twitter and uh, I see, I see your, uh, how active you are. And I told I told the Whigs and they were like, is that Richard Beasley? Hell has Harbour Views, Richard Beasley, you know. And everyone was kind of blown away. Um, but, you know, and, and you're probably being modest here. There's not really a question here. But your writing must be, and the way you think in terms of story, must be at such an elite level that – because you know, I can only imagine you would have to devote your entire time to writing to reach those echelons of being able to be published and 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 have a series running like your no. Peter Sander series, you know. But you're juggling two of your professions at the same time. Yeah, although I think in some degrees, um, 
one does complement complement the other. Uh, I think um, good lawyers and good barristers are good writers um, because written submissions are so important, more so now than when I started either at the bar or as a lawyer. Um, and um, good writing is persuasive. Uh, now, th there's not a link between fiction uh, and writing. <laughs> there shouldn't be between fiction and writing an opinion or writing a submission. Sometimes perhaps there is. But um, but being able to, to write well and persuasively and attractively uh, is a really... Uh, uh, a great advantage for a lawyer and a, and a barrister. So there is some complement between the two, I think. Um, but um, obviously, a, a writing a novel is, is a different skill again um, and uh, is, is uh, much more of a marathon than even writing the most difficult submission. Well, there you go. That's, that's what I want to talk to you about. I mean, is time, you know. I mean, writing requires time. And your career is very demanding. At the, you know, you're at the upper upper echelon levels of being a barrister, a senior counsel at that. Also, how does that play into the 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 craft of writing? How do you find the time? Uh, Hellas Harbour Views. I started writing at the law firm I was working at okay. when I knew I was going to leave and go to the bar, so it didn't matter how productive I was being, at least for me. That's interesting, um, yeah. And I finished it when I was first at the bar where uh, work was intermittent. Second book, I got a massive advance uh, and uh, didn't do any work on it, and then two months before it was due, uh, dropped everything and finished the book. Um <laughs> Uh, third book, uh, my then wife, and th this could, could explain divorce, she said, take a year off, Rich, write another book. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I, <laughs> I had that indulgence. Um, and uh, the Peter Tanner books, um, Cyanide Gains and Burden of Lies, have been written just in between work or um, killing myself to do it. Um, and the non-fiction book, Dead in the Water, was uh, written at the start of COVID. Okay, um, okay. And was a much... That, that was uh, much easier to do because the subject matter was in my head. I yeah. didn't have to create a character or a story. Um, uh, and, and I found doing non-fiction, um, you know... Uh, much easier to, to finish it in a short period of time. So well, that's interesting. I mean, well, we should talk about this and, and, and give some information that, that Dead in the Water it, it relates to the Murray Darling Basin, uh, yeah. and you were a council assisting on the Royal yeah. Commission into the Murray Darling Basin. Yeah. Can you? I mean, I was doing a little bit of research on it, and um, I just wanted to know if you could just fill us in. The, the Murray Darling Basin is running out of water. Right, essentially, or uh, well, there's enough it in there? this year, but the long term, the long term trend, yes, because of a climate change and b over extraction, mm -hmm. is for a, a, a significant. Well, climate change itself will cause a significant um, reduction and runoff of water into the river systems of the Murray Darling Basin. Every one degree C on a daily average. 
the earth gets hotter and at the moment we're already 1.1 degrees C hotter than pre-industrial times, you get 15% less runoff of water into the river systems of the basin. So if you're talking a two degree C rise, and we're looking at more than that by the end of this century, you're talking 30% less water. Remembering Australia's rivers, we might call it the mighty Murray, but we've actually got a fairly feeble, they're hydrologically feeble rivers. We don't have much water in any event. We've over allocated for whatever reasons water to irrigated agriculture and then if you add climate change onto onto that yes the long-term trend is we are going to kill the environmental assets i hate to use the word asset but that's how they're referred to in the legislation the environmental assets of the basin which include 16 wetlands over which Australia's got international treaty obligations so it's a fairly serious thing that's interesting yeah so and and it is uh, the, the treaties, notwithstanding that, it, it's it's part of the Water Act, right? The legislation you're referring yeah. to is the Water Act, and yeah. that's Malcolm Turnbull's, uh, the Turnbull government's, one of their legacies. That's his legacy, that right? that's his oh, legacy right. from be- before he was Prime Minister, yes. Right. And his. That's interesting. And so uh, you, when you were assisting, uh, the council assisting in the Royal Commission, the findings were that, if I'm not mistaken, uh, irrigators were taking too much, in a nutshell. Um, I, I think I'd prefer, prefer to put it this way. That That's right. What you just said is right, but that's um, not the main finding the Royal Commission. The, the, the main finding the Royal Commission is this, it, to explain it, I mean, people hear about this thing, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Most Australians, for perfectly reasonable reasons, have got no idea what it is. Mm. But in its simplest form, it, it, it's this. Um, we're going to have a plan... We're not, and the plan's not anti-farming. It's not anti-irrigation. It's not even anti-big irrigation. It's not anti-cotton. It's not anti-rice. We're not going to go back to pre seventeen eighty eight. We're still going to have food and fibre grown in the Murray Darling Basin, which is an area of land over four states, nearly twice the size of France, where sixty percent of Australia's farms are. We're still going to grow food and fibre there, so we're still going to irrigate the Murray and the Darling and, its other, and the other rivers, but we're going to stop at the point where we kill the environment, which means the scientists had to work out how much water that we're currently using for big agriculture has to go back to the environment so that we stop destroying the environment. So that, that, that is the basin plan in a nutshell. It was a plan to not end irrigation but to cap it at the point where you wouldn't destroy the environment and the scientists came up with a figure and that was too much for agricultural lobby groups and frankly too much for bureaucrats and politicians and even though the Water Act says you have to base this figure that the environment needs only on the basis of the best available science. Um, Brett Walker, who was the Royal Commissioner, found it wasn't done on the basis of science at all. It was done as a political fix, um, uh, which is makes it unlawful, the Basin Plan unlawful, even though it's, um, it itself is an, act of fe- uh, is an instrument of the Federal Parliament. And not only did they do it as a political fix, 
because they knew it would um, mean even more water needed to be given to the environment. Um, unlawfully, again, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority that put the plan together decided to ignore climate change projections, which, frankly, on its own makes the plan a joke in a, in a country that's getting hotter and drier. So, in a nutshell, Walker found the Basin plan to be unlawful because it didn't comply with the Water Act. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so interesting findings, and it's kind of, you know, led... Would you say, and you've written the book, I mean, it's had a major impact on you. Were you always environmentally focused? No, or? I wouldn't have been able to find the Murray-Darling Basin on a map before the Royal Commission. Uh, not that I was anti-environment, and I've certainly done my share of work over the years as a barrister for mining companies, including seeking coal mine approvals and other things that people might uh, view as uh, dubious ethically or morally, but of course are entirely consistent with the cab rank rule. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't have described myself... I mean, I was certainly not as an environmentalist, not because I don't want to be, it's just that I didn't know enough about it. But what irritated me most about being... Um, council assisting this Royal Commission was that everyone in Canberra that's in charge of this plan, bureaucrats, politicians, they know it's unlawful. They know it. it's a plan that has not been put together on the basis of the best available science. They know it involves a political fix. They know climate change being ignored. They know there's other aspects that Walker found that make the plan illegal, uh, unlawful. And, and what shits me the most about that is, is the lack of honesty about it. I, I don't care if politicians say, look, science, the science figure means too much water going back to the environment and that'll, that'll make it politically impossible for us to sell this. We'll never get it legislated through Parliament if we do it according to the Act. Fine, then change the bloody Act and do it lawfully. Change the Act so it says we'll be guided in, the, in working out the amount of water the environment needs, we won't base it on science. We'll be guided by science, but otherwise it will be negotiated between the four basin states, the Commonwealth Government, and we'll hear the views on everyone from greenies through to the biggest irrigators. And mm. in that way, at least it would be transparent and it would be honest. Mm. It would be a cop-out, but it would... It would um... Well, it, it, it might be, but you might, by taking that honest approach, you might stop the bullshit about how, much, how many jobs it costs to take water out of yeah. uh, particular towns, because some it has no impact at all, because farmers just adapt. Yeah. Others, towns in, in rural Australia that are very water-dependent, um, don't forget this was all done voluntarily, but the government buying water off... Some irrigators in those towns may have had uh, an economic impact on those towns. So, but if you if you at least got everyone together and did this honestly, you might end up with the right answers for everything. But by doing it dishonestly and, and essentially dressing science, politics up as science, this is politics, it was dressed up as science, that yeah. always leads to bad outcomes because everyone th feels cheated that the, the big irrigators that never wanted a basin plan will always feel cheated. Farmers might feel cheated. Um, environmentalists and scientists feel cheated because they know um, uh, 
the, the government's pulling a swift one by not basing the plan on science. Lawyers that look at this get the shits because we know it's unlawful. So everyone is pissed off. Yeah. Um, if you were honest, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you changed the act and did it a different way, who knows what had happened. But the one thing I can tell you, Jim, is with, with a basin plan or no basin plan, unfortunately, climate change is coming for rural Australia. There's going to be less water. It's going to be hotter. It's going to be drier. A two degrees global daily average rise in, in temperatures on the planet and in the basin doesn't mean the difference between a 25 degree day and a 27 degree day. It means the difference of many towns having a week in summer where it's 40 degrees plus and instead having four to six weeks in a row where the temperature's at that level where you can't grow a bloody thing. So okay. the National Party and all the opponents to the basin plan, they still have got jobs to do and working out how the hell their constituents are going to adapt to this future, whereas a matter of scientific certainty, not, not a lawyer talking, scientific certainty, it's going to get hotter and drier. We need some solutions to that. Instead, we've got a federal government that does F all. Um, on that... Rant, but there you go. No, I love it. I love it. And, well, you know... It, you wouldn't have written a book if it didn't inflame the passion so much. You know what I mean? It's definitely triggered a nerve. I feel my blood pressure going again. <laughs> I think there's a dead in the water too in there, I reckon, somewhere. You've got to flesh that out, Richard. Um, look, on that theme, and, you know, you, when we were talking over email to set up this interview, you said, uh, you know, you, you had a win uh, in, in August in the Land and Environment Court yeah. in New South Wales. Yeah. You were representing the Bushfire Survivors for Climate Change, uh, sorry, Climate Action Incorporated yeah. uh, versus the EPA, the Environmental Protection Authority. Yeah. In similar circumstances, uh, 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 they had a statutory author- uh, a duty. Yep. Uh, and, and, and it's a very interesting case. I remember the Whigs and everyone was sharing it on our internal chats. Can you tell us what, what uh, for, for, the, for us, what does it mean? What are the long-term ramifications of this ruling? So, uh, my personal view is that litigation like this and other climate change-related litigation that's, um, let's just talk locally for a moment, happening in Australia is being driven because our federal government is essentially doing nothing about climate change except telling us how brilliantly they're de- dealing with dealing with it. And, it's, and, and, a, it's an inevitability, right? Is that what you're saying? There's no, no policy, no, so the common law's taken over. People are forced into courts. The particular case you're talking about, bush, bushfire, uh, bushfire survivors for climate yeah. action versus the EPA, was based on one section of the act that set up the EPA in 1991 which requires it in other words mandates that it must develop policies to ensure the protection of the New South Wales environment and what we said was whatever that required in 1991 that provision is one that is not static And it will change depending on changing circumstances. And what we said was that in 2021, 30 years after this act was passed, the greatest threat to the New South Wales environment and its people is from climate change. And so the EPA must develop policies, objectives and guidelines that address climate change. And whilst 
the words ensure environmental protection can't be taken totally literally. In other words, we accept there's no policy that the EPA of New South Wales or any other New South Wales agency could develop that would literally ensure the New South Wales environment is protected from climate change, given that we have no control over what happens in India or China or anywhere else. Greenhouse gas emissions uh, are being sent into the atmosphere. That the, the obligation is on the Environmental Protection Agency to develop policies that are aimed at that. They have the aim of ensuring environmental protection. We went as far as saying they need to develop policies that uh, are aimed at keeping the Earth's temperature wise to 1.5 degrees C, consistent with the aim of the Paris Agreement. The judge didn't accept that, but he said, uh, I'll go as far as making an order for mandamus, which is pretty rare against a government agency, requiring it to develop um, policies, objectives and guidelines to ensure environmental protection in New South Wales addressing climate change, which, if they do it properly... If you think about it, almost certainly those policies would have to, uh, in my view, have um, include regulating New South Wales um, GHG emissions. Otherwise, yeah. it won't be dealing with it, dealing with climate change. Uh, That's really yeah, interesting. So, so the judge looked at uh, the scenarios and said, you're, you're right, there is no, I can't find any evidence that they've used to address. That, that, they, the EPA produced a lot, and look, I get how this happens because they were sort of relying on a whole of government approach, but the EPA tended a heap of its policies, for example, its, its recycling policy or its putrescible right. waste policy and said, well, that'll have a this minuscule <laughs> reduction in... GHG emissions, and the judge said, "No, nah, look, that's not a that's not a climate change policy. Interesting. That's a yeah. waste policy or a recycling policy that has this very minor aspect of uh, perhaps reducing GHG emissions, but it's not a climate change policy per se." So, the the minister has announced the minister who's Matt Keane, yeah, uh, has announced there won't be an appeal. The EPA board had a meeting. They decided not to appeal, which is great. Good on them. Yeah, great. Good on them for that. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for the New South Wales EPA to now engage in climate change. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the, the people with expertise within the EPA and others are actually really pleased they have this opportunity now. So, um, as I said, that, that's an example of the types of um, climate change litigation that's going around, but there's, there's plenty of others at the moment. Well, who's the genius who thought this up? Like, who went to the bushfire survivors and went, hey, i got this crazy idea? Uh, I think we... Uh, the, the David Hume was my junior counsel in this. I don't think either he or I can take credit for that. <laughs> I think we'll have to give credit to the Environmental Defenders Office. So yeah. uh, um, our instructing solicitors were Elaine Johnson, who's one of the senior solicitors there, and Matt Floro, who's a, a, a senior-level solicitor there as well. And... Um, it was either them or someone else. I'm not no, sure. No, great. Well, it was a great strategy. We'll, we'll give credit to the Environmental Defenders Office, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, it sounds like such a Hail Mary pass that completely paid off. So, well no, done. I have to say, my initial advice wasn't full of optimism. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't take on, uh, you don't anyway, take on the man. It, it yeah. wasn't so negative that we didn't go ahead. So, uh, anyway. Ah, good for you. Well done. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's interesting that 
you know, this this is kind of fueling your work lately. But you you mentioned you know before the cab rank rule, and for those of us who you know aren't barristers, yeah. what what is the cab rank rule? You know, and how does it relate to your work, and how can you? You know, does it does it have a stranglehold on what what briefs you can choose? And well, a barrister is meant to be. I think you'd you'd be say it's an obligation under the New South Wales bar rule, barristers' rules, and also an ethical obligation that if you're offered a brief in an area where you have uh, expertise and can conduct the brief advising and appearing then you can't say no just because you don't like the client so um uh if i was offered a say there's a a a new coal mine proposed by mining company a if if mining company a um were uh um uh, uh bold enough to offer me a brief in trying to get an approval for their coal mine, I'm obliged to say yes. I can't say, well, jet greenhouse gas emissions are killing the planet. I've got very young adult children. I want <laughs> a future for them. I'm going to yeah. say no. Um, but in light of... Work. Right. But in light of um, the work that you've produced outside of the law, dead in the water... Yes. It's highly unlikely. Yeah, that I'll give you bring another those. example of the cab rank rule. Brett Walker's Royal Commission report isn't full of praise for Barnaby Joyce, who was once the water, federal water minister. But you'll find that Walker SC has acted for Mr. Joyce in the High Court in relation to um, whether he was uh, in Australian to citizen parliament. Yeah. So mm. there's. I, I mean. That uh, uh, please don't take that as me suggesting for a moment that Brett doesn't like his client, but no, he mightn't vote for him. Um, that's a wild guess, right? And that, you know, no, it's, it's you're highlighting the impartiality of the yeah. of the office, yeah. um, and that's fair enough. I just wanted to go back to um, if we could uh, the the bar itself, and you know, you've, you're famously working in a corporate law firm in Sydney. Uh, you made the decision to go to the bar. Mm. Why did you make the decision? Uh, oh, I think I'd always wanted to uh, be an advocate. So when I said to you I first went to work for a labour law firm in Adelaide for a couple of years, um, pretty much from day one in a firm like that, you're down in the Industrial Court or Industrial Commission appearing on matters um, for... Uh, uh, members of unions, the the unions that are the clients of that firm. Um, You're also getting referrals for minor criminal matters through the unions. I don't necessarily mean dishonesty offences, but stacks of drink driving type things or or those sorts of things where you do guilty pleas. So uh, very early introduction to um, doing minor level trials. Workers' comp matters um uh, in in the industrial court claims for um underpayment of wages or unfair dismissals in the industrial commission so uh, i'd always wanted to 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 be an advocate but when i moved to sydney i didn't know anyone so i wouldn't have got any it would have been pretty tough to find any work so had to had to do a few years as a solicitor before going to the bar, but it was it was a long term. Fair enough. Yeah. I also I'm not sure that um, my 
personality would be suited to the politics of a large law firm. I think I'll probably be shown the door fairly quickly. <laughs> you quickly determined that you were your own boss at a very <laughs> early stage. I, and- I think the bar self-selects a cer- <laughs> uh, certain types of adversarial um, people that uh, may not may I, not be well liked I kind of the boardroom table. <laughs> I would. I, it's interesting, you know, because I, not, you know, prior to a couple of years ago, I didn't know one barrister. Now I know quite a few through happenstance, yeah. and uh, they're very eccentric people. They're interesting. It's certainly uh, yes. There, look, uh, I know from experience with friends that uh, there's a certain level of. Uh, Politics and discretion that generally might need to be shown. Uh, what in the collegiality of uh, partnership that isn't always shown uh, from barristers to other barristers, including on their own floor. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, well, we're in, I'm in a partnership with three other barristers at the moment, and it's it's it's, it's not a foreign concept to them, but. Um, yeah, it's like I used to play in bands, and I always right. consider liken it to a band. You know, you got to get you, you got to be delicate. Yes, you know, um, everybody's got their skill set, but everybody's got to get to, to get together for rehearsal times. You know, yeah, yeah. And so it's just you know, it's 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 a delicate process, especially yeah. with them. Yeah, so, um, yeah. It's interesting though. I mean, what with, with you, I just want to talk to you about your writing and your creative process again because you know I, I love writing too and I, I love the creative process I always thought I wanted to become a filmmaker and I right. dabbled yeah. in filmmaking for many many years and just uh, I just well the, 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 the Hell Has Arb of Views got made into an ABC telly movie and, right. and everyone involved in that on the creative side had a law degree really so, so it was produced by a chap called Ian Colley who's gone on to produce a number of things, some of them documentaries, including one really good one on the local court system, but a number of other dramas, including most famously Rake. Yes. He he was at the Arts Law Centre. The director and the screenwriter was a guy called Peter Duncan, not the Peter Duncan from the law firm I mentioned. Right, right, right. Who uh, got a law degree, worked at Allen's for about seven minutes before he ran off to film school right yeah yeah yeah. and he is also uh he, he's done a number of feature films over the years but also he was a a, a co-creator and um and a regular director and screenwriter of rake as rake. well so mm, yeah it, I, I guess maybe it was the subject matter that attracted them but but um I w- it wouldn't be wouldn't have surprised me on that film if the key grip had a lot yeah <laughs> and everybody's trying to run away from it yeah. i mean i just i'm just in, in awe of the fact that you're able to balance and we've spoke about it before but just you know um the the creative pursuits don't get shelved no matter how busy your workload is they're always there i think they temporarily get shelved um i'll tell you one thing it's impossible for i mean maybe someone can do this and maybe this is what better writers with bigger brains like john mortimer were able to do who's obviously you know highly regarded qc and also (laughs) amongst other uh, achievements, the uh, writer of Rumpole, um, yeah. who seemed to be prolific in terms of his output. I, for one, if I've got a trial coming up or if I'm in a trial, there's no way I can do any creative writing. It just, um, you know, if, if you're writing a, 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 either a novel or even a non-fiction piece, a book like Dead in the Water, you, 
it, it takes all you've got. Yeah. And frankly, if you start in the morning, <laughs> maybe this is soft, but I reckon if you're doing creative writing, if you start in the morning, say at 8 or 9 a.m., you're, you're screwed by, you're stuffed by 1 p.m. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's no capacity, I don't think, for um, then I'll now do a legal opinion or yeah. I'll get ready for court tomorrow. Yeah. So um, I think you do have to do, divide it up. Now, whether that's an aspect of age or... Um, no, I don't think so. ...capacity by me, I, I don't know, but I, I, I can't see how you, you can... Um, write novels and, and um, you know, write a chapter or half a chapter of a novel and the next day go to court on something challenging. It's all, all you'd be thinking about is the matter the next day in court. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I think, I think we, if you look at a professional writer like a Stephen King yeah. who can juggle multiple characters and multiple stories at once, the demands on the characters don't mirror the demands on your clients. And I think that was why it gets pushed to one side. Well well put. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Prior to me doing law school, uh, I was always writing a screenplay. I always had a screenplay. I finished one and start another one. I've got a large bank of screenplays. haven't gone anywhere, but it's just that itch that can't ever be satisfactorily scratched, if you know what I mean. You need to get yourself an agent, Jim. Uh, Yeah, right, yeah. Just like that, Richard. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, is that since studying, similar to you, I've shelved everything, and and I and I can't. Well, there's so no so balance. You, I know you've just had exams. Yeah, you yeah. wouldn't have been writing screenplays in Nothing. the days leading up to, to your exams because all you can bloody think about is that's exactly the right. You've got to do the exam on which is which is interesting. But I would imagine that that that's amplified on your level, uh, just because. I mean, how how many briefs are you are you given? Say in a calendar. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it depends. I mean, you know, briefs. Some briefs re- require little, well, none require little attention, but some require more attention than others. Okay, all right, um, all right. but it's it's uh, it's when things are coming up for hearing that um, you're obviously uh, most engaged for an obvious reason, um, and that's when. Uh, it, it might be like anything. It might be if the hobby wasn't writing, it was something else um, that you just. It provi- assuming it's something that requires intellectual energy, I'm not talking about physical exercise. Yeah, um, sure. But if it's something, it might be painting. Um, uh, although uh, I don't know whether that would be a stress release distraction. I don't know, but but something that's um, um, as intellectually demanding as writing a novel, which uh, you know, whatever people think about your books, whether they're poor, mediocre or good, I can, I can guarantee you writing a novel, and it'll be the same for a screenplay, requires a huge amount of intellectual effort as well as hours. Yeah. You know, ass yeah. on the seat. Yeah. Um, and a lot of thinking time. It's not people... If, if you, I guess if you haven't written a novel, you might think it's all just about writing. I mean, Christ, I reckon for every one hour you're actually tapping on a keyboard or making a note with a pen or writing in longhand with a pen, um, there's 10 hours thought yeah. um, thinking about it. Absolutely. Um, now, where's yours done? In the shower? <laughs> uh, you know, 
I find I've found the best ideas I've had have have been after I've started something. Once okay. you start something, you might have a plan, but but the more you get into it, the better your ideas become. I think because your brain's starting to live with it, um, that things just keep popping into your head, and, and it could be at any time. It could be in the shower. It could be late at night. Um, it could be in a dream. Um, yeah, right. uh, but. Um, I, I don't know that I've had that many great ideas if I haven't actually started something. It, it's starting the writing process that then it, it feeds it feeds on itself and, and, and the ideas start to come, the good ideas, all sorts of ideas, but including the good ones, come after you've actually started the process for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I haven't had any... I don't think um, periods of inspiration if I haven't actually have already started a, a process. Okay, that's interesting. With um, Hell Has Harbour Views, I just want to go back to it just one more time because it's your first book. How did you even know that you could accomplish this? I didn't. How did it, what happened? How, how, what was the drive? Um, well, um, I, I'd always, uh, not always, but since uh, I got first engaged with books, which whilst I'd always read it as, as a small child, I wouldn't, I would have said that sport was more important to me. But about year 10, you know, around the age of 15, I, I read the first book that I ever read where I went, wow, which was, and I think this is very common for either young boys, men, or particular, or of my age or older, uh, but Catcher in the Rye, uh, which wasn't a sec- school book, but a teacher said you should read this book. And that and other books got me thinking, and I was good at English at school, obviously. Uh, you know, I, I want to have a go at writing, um, but, you know, readiness is everything. As a, as a younger person... Uh, I would say, and when I say younger person, I'm talking late teens, probably through most of my 20s, too immature to, to write a, a novel, too distracted by everything. Um, uh, but it had always been in my mind, oh, yes, I must do this, but, you know, nothing put on paper. Um, mm. And then I did have this idea of, a, of writing a crime book, but as soon as I started writing, um, I couldn't help, it, and it, I was writing about a lawyer, I couldn't help taking the piss out of the whole thing. So I realised, shit, I don't think I can I can do a first book unless it's a comedy. Okay. Or unless it's funny. Yeah. And I had this idea about, a, which is a very common theme in literature, about a, a, um, a, a young man who's... Um, got a ethical dilemma about their life and and goes on a redemption story um, um, that's a bit, those, those characters are there's many of those similar type characters to Hugh Walker in more famous books um, and then I, I because I was you know younger I didn't have children when I started Hellas Harbor views uh, I, I just got up really early in the morning. Um, as I said, I was still working, but I, I got up at 5 a.m. almost every day and did two hours of writing for three years. Wow. Until I had, <laughs> I think it was 800 pages of a manuscript. 
that um, I thought was okay. Uh, I got, um, just trying to think whether, I think I'd just gotten married, so I got Trish, my ex, to read it, and she thought it was good. Yeah. So I sent it to a literary agency, and um, I got really lucky. We're late 1990s now, and um, I got an old-school literary agent from Curtis Brown, which is the number one, probably in size, the biggest literary agency in Australia, and I, I don't know how much of this still occurs, but he really worked with me on the book. So he, he made me do draft after redraft after redraft, including changing it from the third person to the first person. Whoa, okay. So that itself is a major bloody oh, rewind. Yeah. But what he was doing was getting it into a form where he was confident I'd get an offer. And okay. so that process went on for 18 months yeah. before he finally sent it out to, to publishers. But And by so that all- stage, he, he was sure it would get an offer and, and he was right. But I, I can still, rem- you know remember being elated but also stunned that three publishers had said yeah I mean they're offering minuscule amounts of money between 5,000 and 15,000 for the advance but so what yeah Um, you know I I, I was really excited but also in a little bit of shock that this thing that I'd started that I thought I'm not even sure I'll finish a book and then I finished I thought oh well well done you finished an entire story, about two hundred and fifty thousand words. Good on you. Sure, uh, twice, three times over. Yeah, uh, um, and but I thought it would stay in a drawer. But anyway, it it it, it got done. So, it, but you know, I, I did have a lot of assistance from my agent, and also the the publisher, the publisher I got. I've forgotten her position at the time. Um, her name's Kate Patterson at Pam McMillan. She's now, I think, the director of publishing there, and she's got on to huge heights with, um, I think, Leanne Moriarty's her... Uh, oh, okay, huge, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also yeah. Uh, Matthew Riley. But she, she um, had some very good structural ideas, so I worked with her for nearly bloody 12 months before yeah. it came out. So there was... Two lots of people really giving me a huge amount of assistance. That's great. I mean, they obviously saw something in the manuscript, the original manuscript, that said, you know, with a, with a couple of tweaks, this is sellable, and we can pull it off, and yeah. and they were right. Yeah, it was it was mainly just it was mainly cutting out <laughs> stacks. And sure, stuff. sure, but you yes. weren't to know, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. 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 And that's the whole that's the process. That's a fascinating story, Richard. And I was really excited to ask you about that. So. Really appreciate your time. I don't want to suck up too much more of your time because it's precious to you and uh, and, uh, and this is a kind of a dream come true for me. But I do want to ask on behalf of the Wigs, would you ever be interested in joining uh, an episode of the Wigs podcast at, at one at time? The, at the drop of a hat. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I'd, I'd love to go on and talk about any subject um, you wanted to. Oh, that's great. We've got a studio at Redfern, so once these COVID uh, situation, uh, you know, we're emancipated a little bit more, we will tee sure. that up. And um, and I really appreciate for your time, Mr. Richard Beasley, SC. Thank you for sharing your story with us. No, it's been a pleasure, Jim. Thanks very much for having me. 